Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. Over the next few moments, I'd like to share some thoughts with you that I, I believe dovetail well with what's been happening already in the service. And I, I want to present an idea that I, I'm, I'm confident that most of us haven't really thought in this direction. And I want to talk about what it means to be a messianic citizen in the 21st century. A messianic citizen. Messianic, of course, the, the, the idea of Messiah is connected to messianic. And another way to say this would be to be uh, the people of the Messiah in this 21st century. Most of us, but not all of us, and especially that group here that just left, most of us were born in the 20th century, in the last century. And when we think about it, I don't know, sometimes it hits me as I've, I've, as I've aged, as I've gotten older, that uh, there's a, a bigger and bigger span of time that I've experienced in my life. Now, you might say, of course you're getting older. You experience more things in your life. Well, when I start thinking in terms of centuries, <laughs> centuries, I'm glad it's not millennia that I'm thinking of. I start thinking in terms of century and realize how much happened in the prior century, that what we would call the 20th century, which is defined as from the year 1900 to 1999. A lot happened in that time frame. For example, I guess it's a bad thing to start out with, but I'm going to do it because it's happening right now all over the world. Wars. Milchamot, wars. The last century and the 20th century were two world wars. There was a Korean War. There was a Vietnam War. And you can check this out if you want to do online research, but there's a list online that lists all the wars that have happened in the last century. Not even counting this century. And it's amazing how many different wars have happened. So during the last century, the 20th century, some of the, the things that happened that were significant to humanity, and maybe even to some of our very lives, wars. And to use the biblical terminology, rumors of wars. How many of you have heard that term before, rumors of war, as Yeshua used that term? And I'm just going to highlight a couple of other areas. From the 20th century, they're still important to us in the 21st century. We're living in the 21st century right now. Technology. Consider the technology between 1900 and just 1999, some of the things that happened. As I began listing some of the technological advances that I'm aware of, and you probably could have a, come up with an even greater list than I am, I just thought about the great strides in transportation that's happened. 
the exploration that's taken place. Some of the countries now where we're more familiar with them, but, but back in the beginning of the 20th century in the year 1900, there was very little known about those countries, countries in Africa, places in Asia, that had been, and, and the Amazon that hadn't really been opened up to the, the eyes and the minds of let's just use Westerners as an example. Dare I say it, astronomy? Have there been some technological advances in astronomy? Uh, to me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of culture and society is what has happened in astronomy. I'm always looking even now for the latest photos of the black hole or the nebula or the, you know, the universe that they've found or the, the things that they can't count because there are so many galaxies and constellations and the, the newest Hubble Plus telescope. <laughs> I think it's called the Weber. But what has happened? I mean, the 20th century brought incredible development in those areas. Astronomy, exploration, transportation, and, and nearly all fields. But just think about radio and television. I'm old enough to remember our first television that we had as a family. I'll say this, it didn't look anything like what we have now. <laughs> it barely had some color to it. I mean, you know, and I'm a color challenge person, but it, the colors in the television, we had a color television, that was the big thing. What a difference now. You realize in the beginning of the, 19, uh, the 20th century, at 1900, there, were, there weren't any Walmarts? I have one friend, a uh, member of this congregation, calls it Wally World. There weren't any Wally Worlds. <laughs> I guess the Jewish way would be Walmarts. There weren't any Walmarts. <laughs> Just think about that. They're, they're, it's ubiquitous. They're, we find them all over the world now. Moon landings and stuff like that. Probes of the ocean floor. Previously, in 1900, uh, the, the idea of the Mariana Trench was basically an unknown idea. Now it's being explored, this deep, deep hole in the Pacific, you know, land underneath the ocean. It's being explored. And there have been studies of everything. What about the weather? We take for granted now. The weather forecast, and I don't know how you are, and I know we have a difficult, uh, meteorologists here in Oklahoma have a difficult task, let's face it. They're dealing with hail and wind and tornadoes and possible tornadoes and warnings and everything else going on. Back in the 1900, from what I understand, you just looked out onto the horizon and hoped you didn't see one. You hoped you didn't see that coming towards you. All that was taking place. And when you think about the, the science that's involved with weather or meteorology, but also think about the atomic sciences. During the last century, the atomic bomb was developed and many other bombs to go with it. Developed. All that happened in the last century. And then societal things, and these have impacted us greatly. The development of communism, 
in the last century. The ideas were there percolating within cultures, but the actual formation of what we might call communism there. Or what about the dramatic growth of cities? I hear sometimes cities mentioned in China, and they say, oh, well, they have seven million people there. And I feel like I'm fairly informed. Do you feel fairly informed in life? But I'd never heard of that seven million people city before. One of many in places like China and India. And what about the decrease, the decrease in the number of family farms? Wow, that's a big change has happened. Perhaps in the past it was more towards a family farm and raising crops in that way. Now it's more of a, you know, an agribusiness thing happening all over the world. In the changing of boundaries, as I've already alluded to, in places like Africa and Asia and Latin America and even to some degree in the Western world here, you know, it's amazing. And all that was last century, and we have things happening right now in the 21st century that surely should get our attention. Yet, when I think about the last century again between 1900 and 1999, I want to pose a question to you for your consideration. I just did a thumbnail sketch of some of the things, events, sciences, and cultural matters, and uh, situations that took place in the last century, the 20th century. But here's the question for your consideration. It's a rhetorical one. You don't need to shout out anything at this point. But of all the events you're aware of from the 20th century, which event, in your opinion, was the most important prophetic event? Prophetic event. Again, that's a rhetorical question. And since I'm up here and I have the microphone, I get to cast my vote. (laughs) And I'm casting my vote today that the most prophetic event of the 20th century, and this is an opinion, was the reestablishment of the Jewish state of Israel. That was a prophetic event. I mean, there are many reasons to say it. I mean, it's been termed as a nation was born in a day, at least in the eyes of the world. A nation was born in a day. Israel's reestablishment as a nation in May of 1948 was truly, and I don't, I don't banter this term around a lot, but it was truly miraculous what happened. And it seems so fitting here as we here congregationally remember Yom HaShoah to remember that from the Shoah, immediately after the Shoah, we see the birth of the nation of Israel, the rebirth, the regathering, the reconnecting of the Jewish people with the land of Israel. So we have called this the undividable trinity. The people of Israel the land of Israel, and the God of Israel. Don't divide those. Keep them in mind. In 1901, at the start of the 20th century, the situation of the Jewish people at that time was not always the best. Jewish people were scattered all over the world, 
Sure, there were areas with large settlement tracts. Eastern Europe. The big cities of the Western world, Paris, New York, there, sure. The areas of North Africa with large Jewish concentrations. Even places like Cairo and the Middle East like Baghdad had large Jewish communities there. And in some cases, there was great persecution that was taking place. We use terms like Hashoah to, as a culmination term, the Holocaust as a culmination term of what happened under the Nazis. But there were other things happening in Jewish history in the, in the 20th century. How many of you have heard the term pogrom? Pogrom, this, this uh, thing, if you watch Fiddler on the Roof, they have a scene with the, the Russians coming in or the, 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 whoever that army is, I assume Russians coming in and warning Tevia that there's, a, there's, some, uh, there's an event that's going to happen. You guys better get ready because we're coming in. We're going to destroy your village. Well, it's fun when you watch it in Fiddler on the Roof with the singing and the dancing, but I'm telling you, it wasn't a song and dance. It was the change of lives. It was the dishevelment of, of existence for those Jewish people in those communities. They were persecuted. They were treated as second-class citizens, not only in, in Europe, but also in the Muslim world as second-class citizens. They were brutalized at times with pogroms. And in retrospect, when we think about the pogroms that took place in Europe, the persecutions, we could say that they were harbingers of the Shoah, of the Holocaust that was to come. Those who had their ears to the track of life in European society, they began to realize this is going to get worse. In the 1920s and the 1930s, I have a book in my library. It was written in 1936, I believe, where the person's trying to warn. He's a European Jewish man. He's trying to warn that there are atrocities coming. And when he published the book, I believe it was published in Connecticut, no one believed him. It wasn't a big seller. No one paid attention. And he was trying to warn, say, this is what's happening now. Remember back then, and I spoke initially in, the, in my message here today about what culture was like in the 20th century. Well, at a certain time, transportation picked up. And at a certain time, communication picked up. And at a certain time, television came in. But there was also this time where those things were not so prevalent or they didn't exist at all. And there were these lonely voices crying out, saying, it's not good in Europe. There are atrocities happening in Europe, and it's going to get worse, and no one or few people listened. There were some who listened, some made Aliyah, I'll use that term now, the term we use now, made Aliyah to Israel, and they survived, but others didn't. Some went to the West, and they survived, but others didn't. Now, this whole scenario, this whole scenario, the pogroms and the persecutions, eventually led to what we might call the ashes of the Holocaust. And those ashes literally filled the skies around places like Auschwitz. And I don't mean to be graphic here, but I think it's important to hit the reality of it. 
And even in 1948, as Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, the Jewish state, was received as a nation, a reborn nation among the family or community of nations, at that very time, there were pastors in this country, 1948, there were pastors in this country trying to figure out how does all this fit into Scripture? And let me suggest to you, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, Please be a Bible-oriented person. Be led of the Spirit, study the Word of God, and, and try to let that Word be the, the guide of your life by the Holy Spirit. But there were pastors at that time wondering, how does all this fit in? Israel's a nation now, 1948. Can you imagine what was happening in the pulpits of the country? How does this fit into the prophetic picture? I asked you the question, what was the greatest prophetic event of the 20th century? Well, they were perhaps facing it, happening right in front of them with the foundation, the formulation, the rebirth, or the born-in-a-day nation, Medinat Israel, the state of Israel. But there was a passage of Scripture that many of them came to, and that's my text for us today. I'm going to read it to you. Yehezkiel, Ezekiel. Chapter 37, and you know this passage well. It's fascinating. I want to read to you the first 14 verses of Ezekiel chapter 37 and think of how pastors and men and women of God at that time might have looked at the events of 1948 and the, re, the rebirth of the nation of Israel and said, how does it fit, fit in prophetically? And they, they honed in on this passage. Here's what it says, New King James Version the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. There was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. 
and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, Tikvatenu, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Do you think those pastors and men and women of God in the 1940s, late 1940s, do you think they hit on something when they started seeing this passage in connection to the rebirth of the state of Israel? I think so. Many prophecies have dual fulfillment, and this surely is one. But you can see how when they read this passage and they looked what was happening in the world around, they didn't have the latest web information but they knew something was stirring. That the bones that seemed to be dead were being breathed into and life was coming and a new nation was being formed. And yet it wasn't a new nation. It was born again. It was a rebirth. I believe that this passage is of special interest to Messianic believers like you and me and in many ways, but I want to just point out three major ways that this passage speaks to us or could speak to us if we will allow it to. And I want to share these with you. I think each of these three major applications that I want to present to you this morning really do or can apply to us as messianic citizens of a 21st century world. For example, application number one. Here's an application from this passage. Our most desperate and trying circumstances are not beyond God's intervention. And friends, when I read about the valley of dry bones with no breath in them, that's a desperate place. Did you notice what Ezekiel 37 verses 2 and 3 said? Let me remind you. It says, then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones, can these bones live? The bones were dry. In fact, they were very dry. They were what we might call withered, dried they were surrounded by a bikah, in Hebrew it's called a valley roundabout. And when, when you hear the picture, when you think of the idea of a valley, I know what I think of growing up in the northeast of this country. Something lush and green and nice. 
But this valley wasn't like that. This valley that's in Ezekiel 37 was a valley that was full of the driest bones you can imagine with no life in them. They were, behold, they were very dry, it says. I believe that this one application is that when we look at the valley of dry bones, we do see a picture that seems of desperation, of despair, almost of hopelessness. How are these bones going to live? And in fact, that was the question. Son of man, can these bones live? That was what God asked Ezekiel. You know, he asked him, can these bones live? But he didn't ask them, how many bones do you count there, Ezekiel? He didn't ask him that. He didn't ask him, how wide is the valley that these bones are in Ezekiel? He didn't ask him that. He didn't ask him, what's your opinion on the reasons for why all these bones are in this valley? He didn't ask him that either. The question that he was asked was, can these bones live? That's what God asked the prophet. How many of you like Ezekiel's answer? <laughs> he said, Lord, you know. <laughs> By the way, friends, don't forget to let him know that you know that he knows. Because <laughs> he resists the proud. But what does he give to the humble? He gives grace. He resists the proud. He wanted to, God asked him, can these bones live? Is their condition and situation beyond the realm of hope, beyond the realm of life and renewal? What do you think, Ezekiel? Can these bones live? And God showed Ezekiel that on their own they couldn't. But with him, with his breath, with his life, with his spirit, really all things are possible. You know the new covenant says that? It says with God, all things are possible. Maybe you're facing an impossible situation. At least it's impossible to you in your thinking. It could be a job situation. It could be a family matter. It could be a financial issue. It seems impossible to you. Please don't limit Hashem. Because with God, all things are possible. Where I think we need to focus on is, is this your will, Lord? Will you do his will? If you do his will, God's will done God's way shall have God's provision as it's been said. Will you do his will? If you will, he'll provide for you. How many of you have seen that in your life, by the way? That he's provided for you when you've taken steps to do his will. He's provided for you sovereignly. Sometimes you don't even know where it came from. And then you see his little thumbprint on it. You see his divine signature on that provision. Now, that was a difficult situation. A valley full of dry bones. Not just dry, but very dry bones. It reminds me. Will we live our lives as hostages of some of the tyrannical circumstances that come into our lives? Will we live as hostages to our circumstances? I pray not. I pray that in the midst of our circumstances that we look to God and we trust him. 
because he's faithful, even as we sang today. Though we be faithless, he is faithful. He can't deny his very nature. He's faithful. Ne'eman, he's faithful. Will we live as God desires us to live is a question. So what God did at the Valley of Dry Bones, he has done even more for you through Yeshua the Messiah. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. His divine power, meaning God's divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Notice the next statement, that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Do you realize that Messiah, if you're a believer, he's being formed in you? You're being conformed to the image of Messiah. I think that's a very high calling, by the way. You've been made, been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, through greed, through excessiveness. Now, that's a first lesson that we get. Our circumstances are not beyond God. Even as desperate as the Valley of Dry Bones was, it was not beyond God. Here's a second lesson I think we get. And we learn this from the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's hinted at in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 6, where God says, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, then you shall know that I am the Lord. There is a big difference between dried bones scattered across the expanse of a bikah, a valley, and those bones being put back together with sinews, being connected correctly, and beginning to function normally, there's a big difference between the valley of dry bones and the end result when God's involved. I think the lesson is this. Adonai Hashem can and will order our lives according to his purpose and place us within the community in order to serve him. But here's the other rub here. Are we willing and are we compliant? And sadly, many of us go through, we go through life thinking we know what is best for our lives. I've been there. Maybe you have too. You think you got it down. You know exactly what you need. There is a, an issue, though, in fact, one of many issues, that we don't really even know our own heart, which is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it, Jeremiah said. And many of us think as we go through life that, that we, we know what's best for our lives, and we end up making some of the fool, most foolish decisions. I've been there. I'm praying that I don't make more. How many of you can agree with that prayer? You don't want to keep making foolish decisions in your life. And sub, sub, subjugating his eternal standards to our standards, as if God should submit to us. 
You gave your way, Lord, but my way's better, Lord. Ouch. And when we do such things and we try to subjugate God's eternal ways to our temporal ways, the idea of temporal is temporary, our temporal ways, we become laded down in what I've often called the valley of regrets. That's where we find ourselves. Psalm 143 verse 8 says this, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Who do you trust in today? Unequivocally, the psalmist says, for in you, Lord, I trust. And then he says, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. And then there's this next statement, for I lift up my soul to you. Notice the subjective action here. I lift up my soul to you. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to submit yourself to him? Are you willing, in, in essence, like the psalmist said, to lift up your soul to him, to give him you? As we sang today, you belong to him. We belong to him. He ransomed us with a great price. He redeemed us out of the very pit of hell and death. And he set our feet on a rock, on a high place, for his name's sake, because of his goodness, because of his mercy, because of his love for you. That's what he did. And it was with a price. The sufferings of Yeshua. His pain for you and for me. It seemed like the psalmist knew that each morning, each passing morning, it's best to trust in the Lord. When we wake up in the morning, we should think, I'm trusting in you today, Lord. I'm going to follow you. It's best to trust in the Lord and to offer one, oneself up to God and to his service. I think this service occurs most readily from the base of a community, being connected to a messianic community. And by the way, I will add to the great miracles of the 20th century, the rebirth of the Messianic Jewish movement. <laughs> what a prophetic event that is. Let's thank the Lord for that. <laughs> Many link it to 1948 and particularly 1967. The rebirth of Messianic Judaism, which hadn't been seen since the first century with the first Jewish Shlichim apostles. You see, when God orders our steps, when he's the one doing the ordering, we enjoy a greater, more satisfying, more kingdom fruit than we've ever experienced. Now, a third and a final lesson that I want to share with you from Ezekiel chapter 37 is verse 14. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. The Hebrew prophets seem to know True life is connected to the eternal spirit of God. They knew that. And Yeshua said this directly in John chapter 6, verse 33, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. Will you say that with me? It is the spirit who gives life. Now, let's not stop. Let's say the next part. The flesh profits nothing. Rhetorical question again, but how much does the flesh profit? Oh, that was a good rhetorical answer right there. 
it is the spirit who gives light. The flesh profits nothing. And then Yeshua continues, says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And how sad is this next statement, or at least revealing, but there are some of you who do not believe. Can you imagine that? Right there, they're listening to the Messiah. They had probably seen all he'd done. They saw his eyes. They saw his action. They heard his words, perhaps. And he says, but there are some of you, some of you who do not believe And for Yeshua knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And he also knew, he also knew who would betray him. So even those who were listening at that point, there were some that just didn't get it. So so how much more will those in our 21st century who have experienced advances of science, the arts and the letters and, and so forth, how much more will they suffer detriment by denying Yeshua and his teaching? They're cutting themselves off from the very essence of life, his words, his teaching. Rav Shaul chided the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 3, said, Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Are you so foolish, he said to them. And he continued in Galatians chapter 5, a very well-traveled passage that many people have memorized. In verse 19, he says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who circle the next word, practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I love verse 22. It starts with B-U-T. <laughs> But the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What was the last one? All right, we're on the same page here. In America, that still rings, self-control. Against such, there is no law, and those who are Messiahs have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Final words I want to share with you in summation. The Ezekiel 37 passage about the value of dry bones. How many of you really like that passage? It's awesome. I only got to read the first 14 verses. Read forward if you like and go into 38 and 39 if you will. But this, this passage it has many more spiritual applications than just these three basic ones that I presented here this morning and quickly presented. But it's seen here, the Peshat meaning, the simplest meaning of this verse is really seen in Ezekiel 37, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. In the 20th century, in May 1948, 
to be more precise, that time. Israel became, as I've mentioned a number of times, a regathered nation. Its dry bones, as it were, taken from the ashes of Auschwitz and the pogroms of Europe and the dehemi status of the Arab nations. And God breathed upon those bones, so to say, figuratively, and created the state of Israel. A great prophetic event. It's a near universal proclamation that it was only God who could have done that. Only Him. To go from such atrocities as we've commemorated here today, the Yom HaShoah, we remembered all those who lost, the known and the unknown who perished. And for God to get that and somehow create the great nation of Israel that we see today. Sure, Israel has many issues. What peoples don't have issues? What nation doesn't have its struggles? But it's a vibrant democracy. It's a friend of many nations and a help in everything from the very things like agriculture to sending up an astronaut. My friends here, if God can take those bones and create a nation of Israel, he can take what you offer him and breathe life into it. Will you offer yourself to him? Will you give him you? The choice rests on your shoulders. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We magnify you because of your great power, your great name, your matchless ways, your unfailing love, and the abundance of grace you give unto us through Yeshua, your Son. Lord, I pray for every person here at this time, everyone hearing these words. Lord, that you would help those who are deep in the valley and need your help. They need the breath of life from you. Lord, please have mercy. Pray also, Lord, for those that are facing difficult circumstances that you will help. Lord, that you'll allow your will to be formed in and through them. And Lord, we offer you thanksgiving for the many miracles you have done, you are doing, and you will do for the display of your power that you've recorded in your word in places like Ezekiel 37, but especially for the new life you give us in Messiah Yeshua. It's in his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. 
Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.